Welcome to episode three of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, professor of humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and teaching courses on its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab Media production. The producer and editor is Wilhelm Schick. In our first episode, we wandered around 35 Commercial Road, the building now at the heart of Holt's London undergraduate campus. In the second, we looked out at its immediate vicinity. This time, I want to venture outside, dodge four lanes of traffic, and stroll through Goodman's Fields, a loosely defined area between Commercial Road and Mansell Street. We will be walking southwest toward the city of London. In fact, at the far end, we will be only a few steps away from some impressive remains of the ancient city of Holt. So Goodman's Fields ought to be really edgy. We should find many oddities of the urban fringe. Industries too dangerous or smelly to be welcome in the center. Activities too politically, morally, or theologically dubious to be acceptable to the authorities. Urban features most efficiently placed where they can be easily reached, both from the city and its hinterlands. Neighborhoods where the necessary poor can be inconspicuously but conveniently housed. And believe me, we will find them all. Goodman's Fields has been home to whorehouses and hospitals, Baptist chapels and boxing rings, livery stables and slums. Until recently, this was the Wild East. First, let's cross Commercial Road and walk through Goodman's style. All that's left is the street sign into Alley Street. Beyond the long-vanished style, Goodman's Fields, as estate agents now understand the term, extends to the left. The Barclay Group has just completed a large and splendid development here. Four towers of upscale apartments surrounded by landscaped courtyards and befounted plazas, with artisan pizzerias, vegan brunches, craft beers, serious gyms, even an art house cinema. It wasn't always like this. In 1598, John Stowe, the hero of our next episode, wrote, Here was for some time a farm belonging to the nunnery of St. Clair, at the which farm I myself in my youth have fetched many a pennyworth of milk, hot from the cow as the same was milked and strained. One trollop and afterwards goodman were the farmers there and had thirty or forty kind to the pail. In Stowe's time, apparently, the cows gave way to horses and then to vegetable gardens, while the Goodman family lived like gentry on the rents. Stowe did not approve of this upward mobility, and as usual for him, was nostalgic for the old agricultural days. The area lost its 30 or 40 kind, but not all its rural character. As Whitechapel developed, one patch of Goodman's Field stayed green on the maps. This was tenter ground between Lehman and Mansell Streets, just west of the new development. The field served the local textile trade. Pieces of cloth were hung on tenter hooks, of course, to dry after they were dyed. Pastoral peace did not always reign here. Tenter ground had a well-deserved reputation for, well, edginess. In 1737, the famous highwayman Dick Turpin stole Captain Tom King's horse, stabled it here, 
then shot the owner dead when he tried to reclaim it. Goodman's Fields was, and still is, home to another kind of edginess. Not far from the two gentlemen's clubs, which now grace Alley Street, the Maudlin Hospital for the Care of Penitent Prostitutes was opened in 1758. Maudlin Passage still marks the site. The hospital was a spectacular success. Records show over 1,500 women living there in its first decade. Jonas Hanway, the hero of our fifth episode, was chairman of the managing committee. When in 1774, the Maudlin, a victim of its own success, moved to larger purpose-built facilities elsewhere, its premises were taken by another of Hanway's projects, the Misericordia Hospital, which treated venereal diseases. Highwaymen, whores, and of course, theater. Londoners love a play but city authorities long disapproved of an anarchic, disorderly, often subversive pastime. So playhouses clustered in areas just beyond civic control. In fact, remains of London's first purpose-built theater, the Red Lion, have recently been excavated on Stepney Way, just a few hundred meters east of here. Goodman's Fields was an ideal location, and in 1727, the first East End theater since the Restoration opened on Alley Street. The opening show was Farquhar's The Recruiting Officer, but the proprietors soon turned to topical political satire, with Henry Fielding, later to write Tom Jones, providing several scripts. In 1737, A Vision of the Golden Rump, an obscene attack on the king's first minister, Robert Walpole, went too far. The Licensing Act was rushed through Parliament and the theatre was closed down. But the censorship was ineffective. The management simply moved the action around the corner into a warehouse on Lehman Street. In 1740, Rule Britannia was apparently first performed there, and a year later, the young David Garrick made his London debut as Richard III, a role that became his trademark. In 1745, the audience no doubt in the gin-fueled afterglow of Body Prince Charlie's defeat, broke spontaneously into God Save the King. In a few years, the theater had gone from anti-government lampoons to royalist anthems. An early visitor commented, What was apprehended from the advertisement of plays to be exhibited in that quarter of the town soon followed? The adjacent houses became taverns in name, but in truth were houses of lewd resort and the former occupiers of them, useful manufacturers and industrious artificers, were driven to seek elsewhere for residence. Theaters, often showing variety shows or even circus acts, were an important feature of the area until the second half of the 19th century. Drama re-emerged in a new and thrilling form more recently. In 1972, Michael Irving, Morris Colburn, and Guy Sprung founded the Half Moon Theater in an abandoned synagogue on Alley Street. This was a pioneer community playhouse, fringe theater in more senses than one. It put on adaptations of Brecht and new semi-improvised plays about local history and current social issues. Simon Callow, Maggie Steed, Francis de la Tour, and Anthony Scher, among others, played here early in their careers, and locals, even passers-by, were drafted into the shows. The Half Moon has now moved further east. The White Swan Pub now occupies the site. 
but the history of the theater on Alley Street is gloriously documented in photographs, mementos, and interviews at the Stages of Half Moon website. In the 18th century, Goodman's Fields gradually disappeared under new streets and alleys and became home to two distinctive categories of Londoners, religious minorities and new immigrants. Some of the first were Jews who wanted to live close to London's only synagogue in Beavis Marks, but who could not afford city rents. In fact, Goodman's Fields was home to distinct communities of Sephardic Portuguese and Ashkenazi Dutch Jews by the late 1600s, and these pioneers may have established the patterns of settlement which led to later larger-scale Jewish settlement in the East End. In the early 20th century, the tenements of Tenter Ground were the childhood homes of the artists David Bomberg and Mark Gertler and the poet Isaac Rosenberg, sometimes known as the Whitechapel Boys. By then, you could not only find several synagogues, including the future Half Moon here, you could also find a whole philanthropic life cycle. The Jewish Orphans Asylum, the headquarters of the Jewish Lads and Girls Brigades, the Jewish Working Men's Club, the Jewish Widow's Home, and the Federation of Synagogues Burial Society. Another group to settle here in large numbers were Germans. Like the Jews, they were often religious refugees. Lutherans leaving Catholic states such as Bavaria, and Catholics made unwelcome in Prussia and other Lutheran states. When they arrived in London, however, all discovered they had more in common, language, food, culture, than they had dividing them, so Protestants and Catholics became neighbors. They had at least five local churches, three Lutheran and two Catholic. One of these, St. George's, the oldest surviving German church in Britain, opened in 1763 and can still be found on Alley Street. Religious services are no longer held in St. George's, but it is open to the public occasionally, and the interior looks misleadingly typical of an 18th century parish church. Misleadingly, because a royal coat of arms is placed prominently above the chancel, as it would have been in any Anglican church of the time. But this is a Lutheran church, and permission had to be obtained with some difficulty to display a symbol of the establishment in a technically nonconformist chapel. Since several contemporary religious institutions in the area were as radical politically as they were theologically, this voluntary expression of loyalty is quite striking. Allegiance of a German church to a German royal house is not surprising and was reciprocated. Next door are the buildings now divided into flats, which once housed German nursery and elementary schools. They were partially funded and ceremonially opened by the Duchess of Teck, Victoria's childhood governess, much maligned in a recent television series. On the other side of St. George's is the building which once housed the Eastern Dispensary, the local charity hospital. The German community were the main workforce in the Whitechapel sugar industry, and as we heard in episode one, sugar boiling was frighteningly dangerous. So although there was a German hospital in Hackney, the local clinic was vital for dealing with victims of industrial accidents. In its first 10 years of operation, 1781 to 91, it treated almost 17,000 patients, of whom almost 14,000 were pronounced cured and relieved. Many of these were casualties at work, 
but the number included 1,666 women in labor who were safely delivered. The dispensary was so successful that it was rebuilt twice. The last building, very grand, but now alas vacant, opened in 1835. St. George's was at the heart of an extraordinary rescue almost as soon as it opened. In 1764, 600 Protestant refugees on their way from Germany to the Virgin Islands were abandoned by their ship's captain in London. Pastor Waxel organized their emergency care, housing them temporarily in 200 tents in the dry moat of the tower. George III took an active interest in their welfare. Waxel arranged permanent settlement for them in South Carolina, where their descendants flourished and long continued as benefactors of St. George's. On a recent visit to the church, I found myself being introduced to one. Who says history does not repeat itself? From 1933 to 35, the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, just on the other side of Whitechapel High Road, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who returned to Germany to fight the Nazis and eventually to die in Flossenburg concentration camp. His friend, the pastor at St. George's, was Julius Rieger, who had been an early member of the Nazi party. Partly under Bonhoeffer's influence, Rieger had a change of heart and established a center for refugees at St. George's. Scholars have recently found his letters making excuses for not attending party meetings at the German embassy. They've also discovered his ingenious plan for rescuing a small but obviously endangered group, Lutheran clergy of Jewish ancestry. Rieger repeatedly advertised in Germany for an assistant pastor and always chose one of Jewish descent. He sponsored his new assistant to obtain a work permit and immigration clearance for himself and his family. Somehow, each time he did this, the relationship didn't quite work out, and Rieger had to seek a new colleague in Germany. Rieger must have been very difficult to work with because as many as 20 families came from Germany to Whitechapel this way in the 1930s. After the war, the congregation received a boost from the German brides and British servicemen but the local community had long since dispersed, and the building was closed for worship and turned over to the Historic Chapels Association in 1996. Bonhoeffer was not the first local clergyman to lose his life for political rather than religious dissent, and maybe not even the most heroic. Here is the story of John James, minister of the Seventh-day Baptist Chapel in Mill Yard, Goodman's Fields. On Saturday, the 19th of October, 1661, as he was preaching to his congregation, he was pulled from the pulpit by force and arrested for high treason. Witnesses swore that he had preached against the legitimacy of the returned king, though others denied ever hearing this. He was committed to Newgate Prison and tried at the king's bench. He denied the authority of the court saying that he submitted only to the judgment of God. His conviction, despite conflicting evidence, was inevitable, and he was eventually hanged and drawn at Tyburn, meeting his death not at all dismayed or terrified, but with a sweet, smiling countenance. After his execution, his embalmed head was placed on a pike outside the entrance to the chapel. Goodman's Fields long remained a center of radical nonconformity, 
I've counted five different Baptist chapels, one of them Dutch, here in the 18th century, with an Anabaptist and a Presbyterian congregation nearby. Some of these had weekly attendances of several hundred, and a couple remained active and fighting ferocious pamphlet wars for over a century. Now all that's left from generation after generation of chapels and churches and synagogues is the charmingly named English Martyrs Roman Catholic Primary School. Well, we've come a long way in a few steps. There is much, much more to say about this wonderfully edgy little neighborhood, but we will save it for another time. Thank you so much for listening. In our next episode, we will change our focus from places to people and look first at my great predecessor and inspiration, John Stowe. I hope you will join us then. If you wish to support Side Streets, please become one of our Patreon subscribers. For just a dollar a month, more if you can afford it, you will get access to extra content such as videos, articles, and audio clips. You can find a link and much more on our website, www.sidestreets.co.uk. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, researched and written by me, Alan Hertz. The producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.